a lot of it is going through documents, like being a gold miner or something, you know, you're trying to find the nugget. And when you find that little nugget and you're the only one who knows, it's really joyful. Ira Rosen produced some of the most memorable and groundbreaking stories for 60 Minutes for nearly 25 years. His book, Ticking Clock, Behind the Scenes at 60 Minutes, reveals the riveting, untold stories of his work with some of the biggest names in journalism. This is the Sperber Prize Podcast, where I'll talk to winners and nominees of the annual award given by Fordham University in honor of author Anne M. Sperber and her remarkable biography of Edward R. Murrow. The award seeks to promote outstanding biographies and memoirs detailing the curious backgrounds to some of history's biggest stories in print and electronic journalism. I'm your host, Kevin Deneen. Today's guest is Mr. Ira Rosen, author of Ticking Clock, Behind the Scenes of 60 Minutes. He had an expansive career as an investigative reporter. He produced on 60 Minutes for nearly 25 years, helped to cover the opioid epidemic, government fraud, sat with gangsters, spies, all sorts of people. How are you doing today, Ira? Thanks. Thanks for having me. What 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 a great honor to be considered for this award. I mean, I saw that uh, one of my mentors, Cy Hirsch, had won it in the past, so... You know, it's great to be in his company. Yeah, and especially coming from, you know, 60 Minutes with the history there, going through all the names. Well, you had Mike Wallace, you got Ed Bradley, you got Dan Rather, you got Diane Sawyer. You know, it's really, it's like the who's who of television. And interestingly enough, um, you know, everyone was inspired by Edward R. Morrow in many ways, where I know the surprise sort of began with her biography. And um, I still I still remember, you know, uh, you know, one of the people who also was a mentor of me uh, was Eric Severide. And Eric Severide was one of the original Morrow boys. And he used to tell me stories about him all the time. And there was a producer at 60 Minutes, Joe Wershba, who is portrayed in the movie uh, about Morrow. And, uh, you know, Joe was was extraordinary. And and, you know, what 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 I was very fortunate about was I had great teachers along the way. And it's it's important, you know, that this being a college for students to have teachers and people who inspire them along the way, who they could model behavior on and and uh, actions and learn from them in many ways. And, uh, you know, I when I when I began at 60 Minutes, Joe Wershba, who was one of Morrow's producers uh, back in the day, he'd come in and he'd say on Friday afternoons, he'd have a little whiskey for me and we'd have a little whiskey shots. And he'd tell me the stories about uh, Edward R. Murrow covering North Korea uh, during the war, uh, the Korean War. And and he, I still remember him telling me about uh, how Murrow would describe the troops digging trenches in the snow, in the tundra of the snow there, and how the shovels would hit the frozen ground, rat tat tat, and and uh, the rhythm of it, and it really made you feel like you were there. And I'll tell you, as as a producer who's like 26 years old, starting at 60 Minutes, I really gained so much inspiration from him. A great part of the book I liked when you're talking with uh, Don Hewitt about the ghost of Murrow still roaming the halls. So you really feel that legacy there at CBS. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, when I began, I don't want to sound like an old man, but when I began a long time ago, these guys would walk in the hallways 
and and they're living legend. I mean, I still remember Rich, Richard C. Hotlet, who was one of the great correspondents of the time, walking in and he wanted to know if he could borrow my phone. I said, "Are you kidding?" <laughs> I mean, yeah, you and you're you're inspired. I mean, you know, you're not going to mess up if you have if you're in the legacy of those people. And along with that, I mean, along the way, you met Marlon Brando, John Gotti Jr., some really big names. Was there ever a moment? where you realized like, this is just my life now, this is normal? Yeah, for me it was, the thing about being a journalist, it gave you a, a, a license to ask the nosiest questions of a total stranger. And that's something, when you're producing 60 Minutes, you have access to everybody in the country, in the world. Um, you could pick up the phone and you're saying, oh, hey, it's Ira Rosen of 60 Minutes, and you, you, um, you get access. Um, one of the stories I have in the book was, I got to be friendly with Al Gore. And uh, when he was vice president, I used to go to his office in the White House and they had a spy phone. And here, this is a trick for investigative reporting, right? So um, what I do is I he'd let me use his office and I'd call everybody I needed to in Washington and the light would ring up vice president's office, but it would be me. And so I would then make all my appointments for the day with a CIA director, national security advisor, and they always be picking up because they think Al Gore's on the line and it's just little old me. Uh, and then after I would do that, I'd leave and I'd go around my way around, make, you know, my appointments for the day. Um, so, yeah, you know, it, it, it was, there was nobody, the only person I think that I was a little bit intimidated by, if that's the right word, but more like in awe of, was Andrei Sakharov, the great um, physicist in, in the Soviet Union who won the Nobel Peace Prize um, and again, because I knew his history, I knew what he had gone through, and I knew what kind of man he was. And I, he was the one person who I was a little bit nervous about being with. Interesting. It all went well, though? Oh, it was an incredible interview. We, we were doing a story about Edward Teller, uh, who is the maker of the U.S. hydrogen bomb. And he wanted us to interview Sakharov because he thought that would be kind of cool. So you got to remember when, when 60 Minutes... When I was there, there was an endless budget. You could jump on an airplane, go anywhere you wanted. So I just went to Moscow, called the bureau ahead of time, arranged to meet with Sakharov. He agreed to go on camera. And when we interviewed Sakharov, he told us that when, when uh, you know, the Russians created the bomb, they didn't get it from the Ethel Rosenberg or the Rosenbergs. In fact, what they did was they waited for above ground nuclear tests of the U.S. And then they waited for the fallout to cross over into Siberia. And then they, the fallout would hit the snows of Siberia, and then they would dig out the fallout from the snow. And that's how they determined how to build a bomb from, from the residue from US nuclear above ground testing. Um, stuff like that, he told me. I mean, and you make all those connections along the way. You meet all these incredible people and they know you as the producer from 60 Minutes. But now you're done with that. You wrote this book. How did that sort of change your connections, your lifestyle in any way? Well, yeah, you, you realize a lot of times who your true friends are. Um, a lot of people, you know, frankly, don't feel like they, you know, you could use me or, you know, because I'm not a 60 Minutes producer anymore. But those aren't really true friends. But other true friends stayed with me. Like, for example, John Gotti Jr., John Gotti Jr. was was uh, was one of the people who actually spoke at my retirement party. 
So, you know, you, certain people are, are friends, whether you're a producer or not producer, and other people drop you. That's, hey, welcome to America, welcome to planet Earth. The story started so long ago. I mean, all the way to the beginning of your career, and then it's come all the way up to the end now. Were you just taking notes the whole time? Did you have it in your head? I want to make this book out of this? Well, a lot of it, when I was when I was taking notes, and I was taking notes a lot of the time, it was kind of like an artist writing, doing a quick sketch. Um, Morley Safer used to do a lot of sketches. It was like a nervous habit of his. And he, you know, he was a great artist, great writer too. But I used to do it like if I was in a crazy meeting, I would practice my writing. So let's say you're in a meeting and something like one of the stories I tell in the book was about the time we had lunch with Jackie Onassis. And it was such a crazy day. I, I wrote it up um, like I would a short story, um, partly to memorialize it and also partly just to keep the practice, my practice as a writer going. Um, I didn't know if I was ever going to write a book and probably began to put it together, um, you know, maybe about 10 years ago. Um, I act, you know, and, and I, w I was putting it together and, and doing it. Um, and as I started to accumulate, I said, you know, this is a pretty good, important legacy for people who want to be investigative reporters, who need to understand the good and the bad that comes with that um, and how to do it. Um, it's not simply uh, calling somebody out and asking a few questions. The key is building relationships. You know, it's, it's getting someone to want to invest in seeing you succeed. That's something that's really important. And, and you don't call up somebody when you want something from them. You call them up to sort of see how they're doing, how their kids are doing, tell a joke, find out a good restaurant, tell them about a good restaurant. And so, you know, that's what relationship building is. So when you do ultimately call them for the big ask, you know, they'll be much more receptive to it. Yeah. Well, I know you said you were taking John Gotti out for four years before you finally got him. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and the night, the night that he agreed, you know, we were having a nice meal in Syosset and, uh, you know, the, the, he had, it was John and me, his criminal attorney, and then another attorney. The other attorney didn't say a word except flounder, which is what he ordered for dinner that night. And he was just staring at me. And we're telling, I'm telling him about my kids. He's telling me about his kids. And at the end of the night, this guy, Tony, comes up to me. He said, okay, you're in. When you want to do the interview? And I said, what are you talking about? John didn't say anything. He said, yeah, but when he started talking to about his kids, that was the code for it's okay, let's do this. So, you know, you, you, you don't know when things like that will happen. Um, you, you develop, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book was, you know, the courting of Steve Bannon, go flying down on Washington, to Washington on weekends to meet with him in the uh, White House and then ultimately go into his home, um, you know, to be there for the good days and the bad days that he had. And when you're in the White House, you have a lot of good and bad days. Um, and again, when he ended up getting fired, uh, he ended up going with me because he had developed that level of trust. Yeah, towards the end there, you were working more in the White House with these elected officials and that kind of thing. How did you enjoy that to the days where you were out more with Mike Wallace around the world, it seemed like? The, the relationship I had with Mike was complicated. On, on one hand, I was learning from 
one of the great masters um, uh, that ever lived in, in uh, the world of television. But on the other hand, he was a very abusive person. And uh, he, he, would, he would put me down a lot. And uh, we, I, I write about in the book about how everybody who worked in his little unit, it, we all were suffering from some illness or some you know, physical ailment. You know, one guy had a bad back. I had a bad back. Another one went bald. Another one developed early cancer. Another one had a, ulcers that he nicknamed Myron, which was Mike's real name. Um, and and you know he was he was a a bit of a tyrant, um, and so but I made a decision that I was going to do this uh, and stick with him because I was learning from somebody who I called the Picasso of the interviewers, and it you know those nights when we'd be eating dinner and on the road and he'd be asking me what do you think the best question you could ask somebody is I said. Why? Like, why did you kill the guy? He says, he shook his head. No, because. Because will get you much further than a why. You know, you kill the person because, and it's a deeper way to, so he would give me, be giving me little tidbits like that. Um, and, you know, he had an extraordinary ability to look at a total stranger and know exactly what button to push that would drive them crazy. Um, and whatever it would be, you know, he he had that genius about him. But he also was extraordinarily, you know, abusive to men and women, you know, and, and it was really horrible behavior. He probably, you know, if, if he was operating in 2021, he'd probably be hauled out in handcuffs. It seemed like a lot of big personalities like that along the way, a lot of abusive personalities and controversy. Do you think that the personalities and the confrontations drove better stories because these guys were trying to one-up each other all the time? Or do you think it just created a more toxic environment? Well, no, I, I think they were all incredibly uh, competitive. Um, it was Mike Wallace thought nothing of stealing from Morley Safer, for example. He would, and you got to remember, Morley and Mike's offices were about two inches apart. And so it, when, when Mike would steal one of Morley's stories, they wouldn't talk for like a year. I mean, imagine going to the office every day and, and the person next to you, you, you got to try to not only avoid, but not talk to. And that was what spurred them on. You know, and I still remember, you know, when you had a nice story uh, or a good story, people were reluctant to give you compliments. But boy, if you had a story that maybe wasn't so good, you know, I still remember I did a story uh, on this guy, Arnold Bracey, who was accused of spying. And um, Morley walked back by me on Monday after the story aired. He said, that was a really terrible story. And, you know, you, re you remember those more than you remember the compliments. Um, but that was kind of what the, co the, the competitiveness of the place was. It was interesting. I mean, just seeing the way that you described the environment and how it changed over time more crackdowns for the right reasons in the workplace. Do you think there's been people in positions of power just always complicated and flawed and abusive because you've been around a good amount of people like that? No, I wouldn't. I, I don't know about always. Um, I can't speak to always. Um, I could speak to what I went through. And what I went through is, you know, they these people were a mix of, of genius and abusers. Um, not all of them. Again, I don't want to just make a blanket statement, every one of them. 
but you know they there were definitely you know that was part of that what that crazy culture that had existed in the 80s and 90s and i've said in as i said in my book you know i'm not sure if i was a woman who was my age at the time whether i would have survived having mike wallace snap my bra strap in the office you know i just might have just said the hell with this i'm i'm gonna go be a lawyer or something um you know not not to diminish lawyers but it was something that um was really horrible behavior they allowed it to go on at the time back then it was you know i mean the show was making you know hundreds of millions of dollars a year and and nobody you know wanted to do anything to upset the apple cart and then as the culture was phased out you said in the book that you felt like the stories got softer it felt like there wasn't a sense that each show should make a difference anymore and that's why you ultimately left do you think that's just the state of journalism today is that the state of the world or was that just those personalities leaving you know it's really hard to do serious investigative journalism it's it's not an easy thing um you know we we have this picture you know of woodward and bernstein and you know after two, a two hour movie they 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 solve watergate and nixon leaves you know it it it's really a grind i mean one of the people we mentioned earlier in the podcast Cy Hirsch, for example Cy used to stake out people at six in the morning as they left for work and then he'd be there at eight o'clock at night when they got home from work. And as far as they knew, the side was waiting out there day and night. Um, and, and, you know, that's the effort you need to put in to get these people sometimes to talk. Bob Woodward used to bring pots of coffee to people's homes. Um, you know, I, I spent time with Rebecca Mercer, who was, you know, Donald Trump's biggest uh, funder, who was kind of a recluse, Bob Mercer and Rebecca Mercer, they, they created Cambridge Analytica. Um, and I, she invited me to her home and one of her kids was into war movies and I'd sit there and watch war movies with them. And I ended up giving him my collection of, of DVDs of uh, war movies and stuff. And so, you know, it's just, it's just hanging out, hanging out, hanging out. Um, and after a while, they forget you're there. And also, and I talk about in the book about a lot of it is going through documents, like being a gold miner or something, you know, trying to find the nugget. And when you find that little nugget and you're the only one who knows, it's really joyful. And um, the world's moving too fast. And I don't think people appreciate as much the efforts that are made to do really great investigative journalism. I mean, 60 Minutes has changed a lot of what they've done. You know, they used to do, they, 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 they spent a lot of time on creating the right story, telling a story, finding the right words, the struggle to find the right words, to write a script, to change it over and over again until it's just right. Now, I mean, this, they had a story on last night. I mean, I, I commend the effort, but, you know, Scott Pelley flew in to Poland, did a one day at a train station and flew right back out. Somebody who also was on the show, Anderson Cooper, was has been there day in and day out, working the story, working the story. And I applaud his efforts. Um, so you you got to be able to put the effort in. And a lot, I think the calculation now is a lot of people said, well, you know, the one day in and out at a train station was 12 and a half minutes. And, you know, if I would have been there for a week, it still would have been a 12 and a half minute piece. And so I think there's some of that that I see is missing. Um, there's a lot of quick turnarounds. Part of it is a budget thing. 
You know, these the stories that take, you know, a day or two to do is are a lot cheaper than ones that where you're sitting in an edit room for a month for a month. I love that you mentioned um, sort of the research that goes in and having to dive deep into reading because that's so much of what the award is given out based off the Sperber Prize. Um, it's commending Sperber's work researching. Do you know what the longest like paper trail research that you did was? Oh God, there there have been so many. Um, the one that that I talk about probably that is the opiate epidemic story that we did in collaboration with the Washington Post. Um, and and the, the the reporters from the Post, you know, had had uh, done a lot of work, but they. Um, they had a gold mine of material, but a lot of it was a lot of reporting is not only gathering information, but figuring out how best to outrage the audience to the story that you're doing. And so when we did that story, a lot of it was getting the right records together, the 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 right tone, uh, finding the right individuals, and then ultimately finding out what the story is. How do you tell a story? And in that particular story, it was here you have a, a, a uh, opiate epidemic that's killing tens and tens of thousands of people. How did this happen? Who's responsible? Who allowed it to happen? Who's profited from it? Um, and who tried to stop it? So if you could layer your story with that, and the trick is to try to constantly answer the viewer's next question in the next soundbite that you do. So if they're watching this and they're saying, how did this happen? You're right there answering that question. Who tried to stop it? Here you go. Here's an item. So you, what you do is you, you try to almost anticipate that. And that's the key to storytelling. And if you could do that, um, you know, you'll have a successful piece. That piece, you know, after we did it, Donald Trump fired the drug czar. It led to major litigation, which is still being played out, you know, this week and last week. Uh, and, you know, from a awards point of view, it was the single most award-winning piece in the 53-year history of 60 Minutes, when every major broadcast award there, there is to be given and gotten. So, you know, it's it's that kind of story that really, you know, kind of makes you feel proud to be a journalist. I, I enjoyed that part of the book, getting into all of the people that you worked with on that from the Washington Post, all the different roles that people took on, sort of the bad guy personality, good guy personality, trying to get calls back. Can you talk a little bit about sort of being the bad guy in investigative journalism and trying to not, you know, push your sources away? It's not so much being a bad guy. But um, the moment comes when you have to lay out the story to the person you're exposing. And what I've discovered over the years is you could you don't have to kill somebody with, you know, 50 knife wounds. You could you could do the job with two or three. And um, if you sort of sit down with a person and, you know, let's say the opiate industry, the lawyers for the opiate industry, and you say, OK, tell me what it is that that tell me what the point you want to get across. And they say, oh, we're giving this much money to study the epidemic and addiction and so great. Is that what you want to get? Yeah, we that's important to us. Great. You could lay out your story. 
you could still have the same impact, but you just bend over a little bit backwards to be fair to the one you're exposing on. You don't look at him as a Nazi mass murderer, but you look, you know, who doesn't really have, I don't care, you know, even that guy has a point of view, I was following orders or something. But, but what you do is you lay out your story, you give the person or the company the, their, their, their due and allowing them to sort of speak their mind. And what you'll find is after you've done their story, they'll call you up in, from time to time, not always, but from time to time and actually thank you and say you've been fair and you were honorable. And, and when that happens, that makes me feel great. And, and unfortunately, I think a lot of, um, you know, some of the younger reporters, they just feel like, oh, you're the enemy, we're gonna kill you. And you know, you really don't care what you have to say. Um, and I think that's a real bad attitude. Um, so, you know, you know, I, I'm, I guess I'm an old fashioned investigative reporter. Um, I believe in, in, in being fair to both good guys and bad guys, um, and let the story and the facts present themselves and let the viewer or the reader make up their own mind. Do you think, so politics have obviously played into journalism recently. Do you see that as a rise of sort of social media and the internet having such an impact on the way we're consuming pieces these days? Yeah, no, I, I think when, when I was at 60 Minutes, 60 Minutes was the place where most people got their news. And it had a viewership that rivaled that of the Super Bowl. Today, there are thousands of different news outlets. And, you know, as we used to joke, you know, anybody, you know, could be blogging for the, in their pajamas laying in bed and people would recognize those blogs or those things in the same way they would as a New York Times story. Um, and there's the lack of differentiation. A lot of universities are, are teaching news literacy programs um, so that the reader at home or the viewer at home could discern what real sources are from non-real sources. Um, and, and, uh, and give a peer person a certain sense of empowerment. And I think that's missing today. I think there's too much um, people expressing opinions, creating their own, you know, sites and, and putting their stuff out there and people think they're legitimate. Um, it, it's insane. You finished the book a few years ago. You're done with 60 Minutes now. What are you kind of working on now? Is there anything next? Yeah, I, I, have, a, I have a few things that I'm uh, looking at. But one of the things I've been working since uh, for 50 years, half a century. And what this period in my life is great at is I'm allowed, I'm now trying to understand what I've learned over those 50 years and what I want to next do. And when I was a, when I was probably about your age, I was covering uh, yogis and swamis, and um, most of them were were businessmen and con men and whatever. But there was one guy who was the real deal, a guy named Pirvalayat Khan, who ran the Sufi order, uh, whirling dervishes. I don't know if you know them, but anyway, so um, I did something called darshan, where he kind of gives you something to meditate on for the rest of your life. And what he told me was change your career every seven years. That way you become the ruler of your career and the career doesn't become the ruler of you. Now, of course, I didn't do that. But um, the point of that was to understand that we're here on earth for a limited period of time. And just because I, I was a journalist doesn't mean I have to be a journalist the entire 
you know, game. Um, there may be some other things. So I'm going through this period now where I'm being approached by various people to want me to do this thing or that thing, a documentary here or whatever. And I'm, I'm playing it slow. Um, you know, I'm slow playing it as, as since you play a little golf, you, you know what I mean? You could, you just, you just take your time over the putt. Think it through, figure it out. Think it through. Yep. Ira Rosen, thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast, and we will talk to you soon. Tune in to the Sperber Prize podcast next time for my conversation with Lucy Rose Fisher about her book, The Journalist, Life and Loss in America's Secret War. Special thanks to this episode's guest, Ira Rosen, to Fordham University and the Sperber Prize Committee for making this show possible. For more information about the Sperber Prize, you can visit our website at sperberprize.com. I'm Kevin Deneen. Thanks for listening. I will talk to you soon.